It never has mattered whether you believe in God. Not in the sense that the presence or absence of your belief in any way affects the truth. God is, and no amount of unbelief can sweep him away. It has always mattered, though, whether you believe in God and that the presence or absence of your belief and the faith that does or does not grow out of it has great effect on your own destiny. This is a story about which gods you choose to believe in, for we all sacrifice to something. We all choose to place our trust somewhere. And this is a story about how much that choice matters. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Let's say you live in Israel in the 9th century BC. You're a baker or a fisherman or a mother or a winemaker, and you spend your days in much the same ways that people have always spent their days, working, laughing with friends, smiling with family, arguing with family, making dinner, taking walks, dreaming of the future, trying to get ahead, talking about the weather and the latest news, telling and listening to stories, paying bills, and worshiping. Worship has always been a central part of Israelite life. And here, now, for you and for the people around you, that's no different. But worship these days is, well, confusing. Since long ago, the people who live where you live have worshiped Yahweh, the true and living God, maker of heaven and earth, the one who brought Moses and his countrymen out of Egypt across the Red Sea, the one who empowered King David to slay a lion and a bear and a giant. Yahweh, the one who made a covenant with the nation of Israel, a special binding relationship, a mingling of law and love. But for many years now, the people who live where you live have also been worshiping Baal, a Canaanite deity revered by the original inhabitants of this land, the prince, they sometimes call him, owner of the earth. At first, it was social pressure, really. No one likes to be different, and when all the countries around you are making sacrifices to Baal, you start to feel strange if you aren't. But then also, there's just an allure to worshiping something or someone you can see. While Yahweh doesn't allow statues or images representing him to be made, Baal is different. There are statues, figurines you can purchase that look like Baal looks. You can even put him on your mantelpiece to bring his presence and favor nearer. And so for someone like you, someone struggling to get by, someone concerned about the future, someone hungry for security, for prosperity, hungry for something they can touch and see, Baal is attractive. Plus, he... I don't know, he seems more human. The stories they tell about him, the way he works, it just seems to make sense to you. Like it's how you might act if you were a god. And that feels familiar. Beyond all that though, Baal is endorsed by the royals. 
Ahab and his wife Jezebel, king and queen of Israel, they openly worship Baal and encourage their subjects to do the same. And so many have, not necessarily instead of Yahweh, mind you, just in addition to him. I mean, who can know really if one or the other is uniquely real or more powerful than the other? Better to hedge your bets and worship both. And so these are the days of King Ahab. And this season will live on in infamy as one of the darkest chapters in the nation's history. Yahweh groans as his people descend deeper and deeper into idolatry as they wander further and further away from him. They are his covenant people, his bride, and this, this is just flagrant infidelity. It's humiliating, and it breaks his heart. And just when it looks like all is lost, Yahweh decides to make an ovation a heartfelt invitation for his people to come home, to come back to him. He counters the bewitching voice of Ahab with another, a voice calling out among the wreckage for survivors to rescue, a voice crying in the wilderness, the voice of a man named Elijah. Elijah is a prophet chosen by Yahweh himself as his spokesman. Fiercely loyal to Yahweh, Elijah is passionate, and Elijah is not afraid to be different. Even his clothes seem odd. He wears a hair shirt made out of animal fur, as if he's a goat waiting to be sacrificed to the Lord. Of course, it feels to Elijah as though that's happened. His faithfulness to Yahweh has cost him so much already. He and around a hundred other prophets of God were hidden away in caves years ago by an informant in the royal court who learned of Queen Jezebel's plan to exterminate them. Somehow, perhaps they scattered, perhaps most of them were discovered and killed, but somehow Elijah now is the only one left. And he's lonely. He's also sick of hiding, of running for his life. Surely he's sick of his country worshiping false gods like Baal, figments of twisted imaginations, surrogate deities keeping the people he loves from experiencing the goodness and care and loving presence of Yahweh, the true God. One day, Yahweh commissions Elijah to go to the feckless King Ahab. Because the king insists on worshiping things that are not God, God sends his prophet with a punishment that will affect not just Ahab, but appropriately, the entire nation that's followed him away from God. Elijah gains an audience with Ahab and declares simply, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. And lo and behold, the rain stops. A month goes by, three months, no storms, no showers, no dew even, a year of this, the streams dry up, 
two years. The earth crusts and cracks, plants wither, first the flowers, then the grass, then the crops, then even the trees, their thirsty roots, able to find no relief underground. Two and a half years. Their grain stores now exhausted, full-fledged famine ensues in Israel. Animals now die in the dust, their bones bleached white by the unrelenting sun. People begin to starve. They remember, they tell stories about when there was so much water in Israel you could drink to your heart's content, splash in it, spill it without a thought. Parents of six-year-olds try to describe to their children, barely too young to remember it, the smell and the feel and the unmistakable sound of a heavy rain. Finally, when it seems the nation itself might be blown away with the dust, God tells Elijah to go to King Ahab and tell him, in his mercy, Yahweh is finally going to bring rain. When they meet, Ahab is livid. If only he and Jezebel had been successful in killing Elijah years ago, they could have silenced his voice, always contrary, always so critical, no respect for the monarchy. And now these last three years of crushing drought, all his fault, a stain on Ahab's illustrious reign. As soon as Elijah comes into his view, Ahab shouts, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah snaps back, but you and your father's family have. How could Ahab be so blind? How could his heart be so hard? The drought should have been a wake-up call for the king, a chance for him to reconsider his blatant idolatry, his selfishness, his toxic leadership. But no. Ahab's eyes are full only of indignation, as if he has no idea why his subjects are dying of thirst. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. And now, since Ahab clearly has no intention of changing that allegiance, it's time to demonstrate the foolishness of his choice. Elijah tells the king to gather the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, another pagan deity now beloved by Israel, and meet him on Mount Carmel. Oh, and bring an audience, he says, people from all over Israel. Very well, says Ahab, we'll settle this once and for all. And so the king sends word to gather his false prophets and his faltering people. And you go, you, the baker or the butcher, the mother or the uncle, along with the fishermen and the winemakers, you all take to the road and go, moving north like a great herd of sheep, talking to one another about what's about to happen, about what the strange prophet Elijah might have in mind. And as you go, you wonder, is this when you'll finally find out? Is this when you'll finally discover that Baal is as powerful as you'd hoped, not just some invented security blanket? 
Or that Yahweh, perhaps, is as real as your great-great-great-grandparents said he was? That he's not absent, that he hasn't given up on Israel? Does he see your crop failures? Does he celebrate when your nets fill with fish? Did he weep when your son died last year? Was he the one who created your beautiful granddaughter? Is this when you finally find out? Of course, if Yahweh is real, if he is here in Israel, has been all along and all this time, you and your wife and your neighbors and King Ahab himself have been worshiping Baal, surely he's he's enraged. Do not have other gods besides me. Wasn't that what he said to Moses? Wasn't that the first of the 10 sayings from Mount Sinai? If you were that God and, and your people had turned their backs on you, if, if their king had modeled that kind of rebellion, well, there would be no mercy. Of that you are sure. What then would this Yahweh do? Your pulse quickens. Eventually, the mountain finally comes into view. Carmel is not just one mountain, but essentially a mountain range in northern Israel, four or five miles of peaks stretching southeast from the Mediterranean Sea. Everyone knows about Carmel. It's the western border of the Jezreel Valley. Everyone calls it Carmel because that's a Hebrew word that can mean both fresh and vineyard. Its slopes are famously draped in vegetation, oak trees, pines olive trees and laurels. For years, thanks to all that cover, Carmel has been a popular haunt of criminals on the run. Its forests and caves could hide you from God himself, or at least it seems that way. The caravan of Israelites gets closer and sees that the drought has devastated even this place. What's usually a verdant landscape showcasing a thousand shades of green instead boasts as many variations of brown. Many of the trees, in fact, are bare, their leafless branches offering no place to hide. Finally, everyone arrives at the set meeting place. At least a thousand people, maybe two or three thousand, maybe more, All of you clustered along the slopes of Carmel, waiting to see what Elijah has up his sleeve. And with everyone gathered, Elijah strides into the crowd of wayward children of God, locking eyes with you and a dozen others as he cuts his way through. Finally, he climbs up on a rock and shouts, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. No one says a word. Nothing but the sound of the parched wind blowing its way across the mountain. Finally, Elijah speaks again. I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, he shouts. But Baal has 450 prophets. And then his proposal, Yahweh's, really. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull, he says, and like you, I will not set fire to it. And with eyes blazing, Elijah says to King Ahab, Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. 
Silence falls as the people consider the challenge. Then heads begin to nod. Yes, yes, that's fair. What you say is good. You go first, Elijah says. And no cheating. Baal lights the fire. And so they take their places around the sacrifice and they begin to pray. Baal, answer us. Nothing. They keep at it. No response. We should dance, one of them says. Baal seems to like it when we dance. And so they do, bouncing and twisting, circling the altar, screaming, Answer us, Baal! For 15 minutes, nothing happens. An hour goes by. The blood of the bull is starting to clot. Two hours. This goes on from morning till noon, with no response. Just the parched wind blowing across the mountain. Finally, at noon, Elijah cannot hold back. Shout louder, he says. Perhaps that's your problem. After all, it is windy up here. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be wakened. So the prophets shout louder. And then things get stranger and sadder. They start cutting themselves with swords and spears as an offering to Baal, raising their hands skyward as blood drips down their arms and falls on the cracked soil. Nothing happens. But they will not be stopped. They continue on frantically like this until evening. But there is no response. No one answers. No one pays attention. Finally, with the sun setting on the prophets of Baal, Elijah speaks again. What he says may sound like a simple logistical instruction, but it's what this whole event is about. It's what Yahweh has been saying for generations to his prodigal people. It's what he wants more than anything in the world. The prophet calls out to the crowd, come here to me. And as you move slowly in his direction, Elijah walks over to an altar to Yahweh, set up years before that had been torn down in defiance by those refusing to worship him. He takes one scattered stone after another, stacking each on top of the last, slowly but surely. And as the people of the ten-tribe portion of a divided twelve-tribe nation look on, Elijah stacks not ten stones, but twelve, making them into an altar to the Lord. He digs a trench around the altar. You wonder as you look on, Elijah scraping a circular scar into the ground. What is he doing? He arranges the wood. All by himself, he butchers the bull, sweat drops and blood flowing mingled down. He lays the sacrifice on the altar. Fill four large jars with water, he orders and pour it on the offering and on the wood. People go, and out of overwhelming curiosity or some latent respect for the spokesman of God, 
they find what must be one of the last remaining sources of water nestled up there on the mountain, return and pour every drop of the precious liquid onto the altar. Do it again. Back they run, come again and pour every jar out. Do it a third time, he orders. Once again, they drench the sacrifice in water, soaking the meat and the wood, the water running down across the 12 rocks until the trench is full. Elijah then steps forward and prays, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And suddenly, as the twilight fades and the sky becomes a dark canvas, a column of fire shoots down from the heavens and consumes the sacrifice. Every person's face shining orange and yellow and blue, not a flicker as if shadow and light were battling evenly matched, but illumination. Even Ahab's cheeks are warm and luminescent. The fire keeps coming. It continues to pound down in a column against the altar until the sacrifice is ash and the wood is gone and the stones and the soil are black and the water in the trench has long since disappeared. And just as suddenly as it began, the fire stops. Like a move that's been synchronized and practiced, the entire crowd, you and your neighbor, your cousin, your boss, everyone, hits their knees. You bury your faces in the ground. The Lord, He is God, you cry. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commands, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They're seized. And Elijah has them brought down to the Kaishan Valley and slaughtered there like bulls. But you and your people are spared and invited to start a new chapter. Even the earth, it seems, gets to begin again. For somewhere far above the baked soil, far above the heads of the people who've so recently, so fervently bowed to Yahweh, evaporated water, perhaps the very water burned in the sacrifice, cools, clings to tiny specks of dust as it condenses, and forms the beginnings of a cloud. A cloud that will bring you what you so desperately need. A cloud that will soon darken and burst and remind you and your children and everyone in Israel of the God who does not live on mantelpieces and who, thankfully, does not act like you. Before they leave the mountain, Elijah looks to the sky and says to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain.
Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you would like to share this podcast with a friend, I would love for you to do that. I'd also be thrilled if you'd subscribe and leave a quick review. That'll help more people discover the show. Besides, I'd love to hear from you. You can find out more, including why I created this podcast and what I'm hoping to accomplish with it at holyghoststories.org. Oh, and follow along on Instagram. Just search Holy Ghost Stories Podcast. Till next time.